Good afternoon. You're very welcome to today's edition of What Matters. What Matters is a programme where we look and discuss issues of topical and of social importance, issues which affect those of us living in Ireland today. My name is Ger Ledden and today we speak to a woman who has suffered tremendously and more than most of us have throughout her life. Cassie Moore is a pseudonym. It's not Cassie's real name. For legal reasons and for reasons of privacy, we will not be divulging Cassie's real name throughout this programme. But be assured, Cassie's story is all too true. This programme deals with sensitive issues relating to both sexual and domestic abuse. And parental guidance is advised. tricky for me at the moment um, I have just seven weeks ago buried my husband the love of my life and uh, we'd only been married three weeks so his death although we knew he was sick his death was very sudden and of course it was a huge huge shock now you're talking about Connor Cassie um, yeah what happened um, back in February, the 8th of February um, 2013, uh, Connor was uh, complaining of really, really bad pain in his right, his left upper arm, so much so that I took him to casualty. And um, he had been told before that uh, what he actually had was rotary cuff tendinitis. And um, when he got to the hospital, uh, they x-rayed him and it showed that he had four upper arm fractures in his left arm, which were caused by a tumour, a cancerous tumour. Um, he spent a couple of weeks in hospital and had further tests and scans, and we got the devastating news that he had renal cell cancer. It was in his kidney, and we were told that his cancer was incurable, but uh, they believed that they could control it, and you know his prognosis was a lot better than than we really found out in the end. Uh, he began treatment. We had, he had an operation on his arm to put a pin in it. And um, life was going on. We were exceptionally happy. I mean, we were very, very, very much in love. And um, we got married on the 13th of August, 2014. We had a most amazing, beautiful, love-filled day. And... Um, a week after the wedding, Connor was back in hospital again. He had a chest infection and we spent our honeymoon in the hospital and the doctors and nurses all knew that that was the honeymoon suite where we were and 
We planned where we were, what we were going to do when he got out of hospital. We were going to go on a little honeymoon. We were going to get some gifts for the house that we got with some of the money we got as wedding gifts. At no point did we think that his mortality would have been in question at that time. And then I got got called into the doctor's office um, on Friday and um, I was told to gather all, all Connor's family around. Cassie, where did you meet Connor? We uh, originally met um, on online dating and uh, we were communicating for about three months. We'd sent pictures of each other, of ourselves to each other and I knew for the first time I saw him that I was absolutely smitten. But wanting to take things slowly and not rush into anything, we emailed nearly every single day for three months. And then on the 23rd of September 2011, we had our first date in the Ardboyne Hotel here in Navin. And that's the hotel just to our right there. Cassie, what was the first date like? Can you describe oh, it? absolutely amazing. He pulled up in um, his Jeep and I pulled up in my little car and I was met with the most amazing smile. And I gave him an amazing smile back. We just knew there and then that that was it. And we walked through this car park here, hand in hand. And I'll never forget the feelings I had when he held my hand. Just absolutely felt so perfect. And uh, then we went into the hotel. um, And we sat just over there. And we had coffee and scones. And we talked like we'd known each other forever. It was just absolutely perfect. And we made it very clear that we liked each other very much. And uh, Connor gave me my first kiss there and then. And I just wanted to melt in his arms. I mean, we were just very, very, very much in love. I mean, three weeks after that, uh, three weeks after that we were engaged. And three months after that, we were living together. And we never were apart from that day. You had a very, very brief period of, of happiness. Life hasn't always been that good for you. Can I bring you back to your first memory when things began to go wrong? Oh, gosh. My first memory um, is when I was about three or four. Um, and I was living in... And um, I was... Um, my first memories as a child begin and my first memories of when things started to go horribly wrong for me. I was about three or four living in that flat up there on the first floor. And um, my stepfather, who I thought at the time was my father, I was later to find out that he was only my stepfather, um, he started to sexually abuse me. Um, my first memory is it was a Saturday, um, and I know that because there was horse racing on the TV, and he called me in to him and told me to sit on his knee, and he got me to masturbate him, and before 
it was finished or before whatever, I just <clears throat> felt him push me away because my mother came home early unexpected. And I was really excited to tell her that Daddy was playing a game with me and um, what he'd let me do. And I just felt this unmerciful slap across my face. And I was dragged by the arm with my legs dangling and thrown into my makeshift bed and told to leave my mother alone. I saw absolute pure fire in my stepfather's eyes. And I don't know, even at that early age, I knew there and then that I had to stay quiet. I wasn't to talk about this game that we played. That went on um, repeatedly till I was 16. I lost my virginity at the age of eight. Um, that was when um, uh, we're here now, where I lost my virginity. We're here now in the city centre, the back of the Gresham Hotel, Sean McDermott Street. You can see now Sean McDermott Street is not the tenements anymore, but when I lived there it was very, very much Tenement Street. And um, it's in that apartment up there, where that apartment should be, is where I lost my virginity when I was eight years old. And Cassie, can you go back there now? Do you ever go back to... Yes, I do, because those those sort of things, Jay, they don't leave you. They... The memory of them are very, very, very clear because they were so traumatic. What had happened was um, my mother was out. She was never home very much in the evenings and this particular evening she'd, she'd gone out as usual. And I had the same call as what I'd always had and it was Cass, make daddy a cup of coffee. And when I knew, when I got that call, I knew what was going to happen. But this night was different in so much as when he called me in, I made the coffee. He was there masturbating as I brought in his coffee. And I expected the same thing to go on. I expected him to want me to perform oral sex on him. But he didn't. He, he got me to sit down and he started to touch me in a way that I just didn't feel comfortable. It was it was starting to hurt and his whole body language seemed so different and he stank of body odour and diesel and I remember feeling choked by the smell of him. And then he proceeded to, to rape me. I, I was screaming because it was hurting so much. I was trying to scream and I couldn't scream. And he put his hand over my mouth and told me to shut up. And I just lay there, feeling like I was being split in two. And he raped me. And he sat back down, lifted me off the chair, told me to go back to bed and be a good girl. And I was, as I was walking out the room, he was, he was sat back in the chair. And he took out a major cigarette and just sat back in the chair and smoked it. And I went back to bed. And I just sobbed myself to sleep. I was in pure agony. And I got up the next morning. I wanted to tell my mom. I wanted to tell her. But I knew that she she wouldn't care. She wouldn't listen. She wouldn't believe me. I was afraid. But I was in terrible pain. And that was that was the pattern of my life on a regular basis, right up until the age of sixteen. I mean, he could he could rape me 
two, three times a week, sometimes four times a week, depending on how often my mother was out or whenever he got the opportunity. Cassie, siblings, did you have older brothers or sisters or were you an only child? No, I had younger um, sisters. I have four younger sisters. Um, The youngest one is 15 years younger than me, so I don't really have much recollection of her as a child, but the others are, there's like 11 months, two years and five years between the rest of us and I would be the oldest. When you were 16, um, you say in your book you were sold into marriage. Yes. This is Ireland in this... 1983. 1983. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. This is the house here where I was given the devastating news that I was getting married. Here we are. This is Tala. Um, This is the house where I was given the devastating news that I was getting married. Um, What had happened is I I was seeing um, a farmer from County Meath. Um, I'd seen him, uh, you know, as a child, like since I was 14. Coming from the city, we were invited down to this farm as a family on several occasions um, for holidays and a friendship struck up with with this other family and they happened to have a much, much older son. And when I say older, I mean, I was 16, he was 28. So that'll give you the idea of the age difference. And he'd taken a shine to me and he used to come up to Dublin and take me out and I sure absolutely loved it because when he was taking me out, I was away from my abuse. I, I didn't have to be in the company of my stepfather and and it was like an escape and uh, he would take me up the Dublin mountains and have sex with me and even though I was only 14, 15 and for me I didn't realise that was wrong Jay. I didn't know because my stepfather did it to me I didn't know the boundaries I didn't know from a sexual point of view what was right and what was wrong and do you think that was a healthy relationship? Do you think perhaps your, your 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 stepfather or your mother knew what was going on? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, my mother and stepfather absolutely knew what was going on. Um, they. Do you think money might have changed hands? Um, yes, I do believe it did. I was told, my mother told me that it did. And so we would, I say, we'd see each other regularly. Like on a Sunday, usually he'd come up to, to Dublin, up to Tala. And one day I was... In the kitchen, my mother told me to go upstairs to see my my sisters, and I came back downstairs, and um, this man and my stepfather is standing shoulder to shoulder, and my mother is standing there in the kitchen, brandishing a consent form, and the consent form was for me to get married. Basically, they'd signed. Because I was 16, I couldn't get married of my own free will. I had to get consent from my parents, which I didn't give any consent. They decided it for me. And they told me I was getting married. And I got married to this man. I was just just turned 16. And I remember being upstairs. We got married in the, in the big house. And as you can see, Jared's a huge, huge house. It's a world away from the little house that we just came from in Tala. And up there in that bedroom, 
is where I prepared to get ready to get married. And I stood there in a white wedding dress that was just absolutely ghastly. It was it was horrid. It was something my mother got a loan of from a friend. And it most certainly was not flattering for a 16-year-old girl. And I stood there and I started crying and I I told my, my stepfather, my mother, I don't want to get married, I don't want to do this. And my mother got very cross with me and she said, don't be so stupid. She says, you're here now. And anyway, she says, we've had the money. I says, what do you mean you've had the money? I'd noticed before I'd left that they, they'd had a new kitchen in, they'd had an aga put in, new carpets. I mean, the, the house in Tala had been totally redone up and I, I didn't think too much about it. So maybe my stepfather had earned extra money or things were going well. And uh, she said, no, we've we've had the money. I said, what, you sold me? And she says, just get yourself dressed, dry those tears and get down them stairs. So I just stood there and I said to my stepfather, I really don't want to do this, daddy. And he said to me, Cass, it's too late. Now just dry your tears and come on. I went downstairs and that room there is where we had the ceremony. In the front room there. And I looked around and it was all his family, all my husband's family, aunties, uncles. Everybody was there, but there was nobody there for me except my mother, my stepfather and my little sisters. And after the ceremony, it was all very surreal. It was all very... What's the word I'm looking for? It's all, all very functional, just functioning didn't mean anything it didn't mean absolutely anything to me ceremony was over and people were eating and everyone was chatting and I had nobody there my age all the the kids were outside playing on a swing see this that swing out there on the tree they were all playing on the, the tire there and I wanted to go out and play with them but I couldn't I was a married woman and I couldn't talk to the ladies that were there at the wedding because I had nothing in common with them either they were all much, much older than me. So to say it was a nice day would be a lie. To say it was a horror day would be the absolute truth. Cassie... Married life or being a married woman at 16 must have been difficult. Did you ever want to go to school and finish your education? Yes, I did. I actually, um, when I got to 17, um, I was very, very lonely, Jay. I was a very, very lonely teenager because I, I was too young for all the other married women and I was too married for all the girls my own age. And I always, always wanted to have a proper education. When I was living at home with my parents, they had no emphasis on education at all. They had no interest in it at all. But I always wanted to be a doctor. So when I got to 17, I went to the local school, the high school there, to tech. And um, 
I asked if I could go back to school and do my leaving. And I was told, absolutely, there was no problem for me. But married or not, I would be like all the other students and I'd have to wear a uniform. Well, I was absolutely delighted. And I came home and I told my husband that I'd been accepted and I could go back and I could do my leaving. And he, in no uncertain terms, told me, no way, no wife of mine is going to make a fool out of me. And that wasn't the word he used, but let's be polite here. Um, was going to make a fool out of him um, by going back to school. So so that was put paid to my my dreams of ever going to school. Cassie, your daughter was born. How old were you then? Right, well, as my life was drifting along, and I, as I say, as I said to you, you know, I was very lonely. The highlight of my life was to walk up that high field up there and sit on a stone and play my guitar with my dog. And I just loved to sing, and I was very much part of the Church of Ireland and the Catholic Church in singing. I'd, I'd sing wherever anybody would listen, I would sing. So when I got to 18... Eighteen and a half, um, I decided. Well, what do you do when you're married? You have a baby, so I'll have a baby, and then I might fit in. So I did get pregnant, and um, my first daughter was born just after my nineteenth birthday. A beautiful, beautiful little girl. Um, and looking back, and being with pure, pure honesty. She, to me, was a little doll. I wasn't mature enough, I wasn't old enough to understand the total responsibility that goes with having a child. And I absolutely did my best for her. With my hand and my heart, I absolutely did. I loved her to absolute bits. She became my whole world. This is the Rotunda Hospital. This is where my first daughter was born. Um, I remember the day I went into labour. Um, and I remember being very, very, very frightened. Things back then in the 80s, having a baby, were far, far different to what they are now. And it was quite a, a scary experience. But um, I had a, a fairly straightforward labour and at those times, they didn't have scans, so you never knew whether you were having a boy or a girl. And when I was told I had a beautiful little girl, I was absolutely over the moon. And she was very, very beautiful, big, big saucer blue eyes and perfect porcelain skin. I mean, I was just totally besotted with her. But like I say, the responsibility of being a mother and having a child were total, totally alien to me until I actually brought her home and, and she was quite a difficult baby. And when I say she was a difficult baby, again, I take full responsibility for that because she probably wasn't difficult at all. It was just, I think it was more a case of my inexperience and that's why she cried so much. Um, and I found it very, very hard because I was desperately, desperately unhappy with my husband. Um, I didn't even particularly like him, never mind love him. So it was a very very, very difficult, tempestuous time. Cassie, when did things begin to go wrong with your husband? Or were they ever right, obviously, to begin with? They were never really right, um, Jer, because, I mean, like, as I say, I was 16. And when you're 16 to when you're 19, you go through a huge growing spurt 
in your psychology and your personality and in, in every part of you. You're, you're the, a different person when you're 19 to when you're 16. And he was, it was the, the relationship we had was very much a, a father-daughter relationship. And I would have been very childlike, really. I, I was quite immature. I would have my friends come down from school, um, from Dublin, to stay with me during the summer holidays. And we'd take cushions out of a, a caravan we had at the back in the backyard. And we'd put them there on the, the tennis court. And we'd do tumbles and acrobats and gymnastics. And then I'd see my husband marching up that field there, scratching his head, telling me that I was making a fool out of him. What, I, what was I thinking I was doing playing? And like to me, I was I was just being a girl. I was just being a teenager. When you went to London, can you describe that for us? My decision to go to London was um, a very difficult decision. Um, I've had many years to look back on it and I believe I made the right decision. Um, but I could have done it a little bit differently. Uh, when I was seven months pregnant on my first daughter, I found my husband in bed with my sister. And that, although it blew me apart and I was very, very, very upset about it, Looking back, it actually gave me the excuse I needed to be able to end what was a very, very unhappy marriage. And when I got to 21, I decided that I was going to go to London. Um, My marriage was in complete tatters. He'd gone off to Canada for three weeks and left me on my own with my daughter. And we didn't even communicate, only to bark at each other. And so I thought, right, I'm going off to London. I was getting phone calls from my mother and been drawn into all kinds of stuff that was going on here in Dublin. And I felt I needed to get away. So I decided I was going to take my daughter with me. Me and my little girl, we were going to go to London. And I told my husband that that's what I was doing. And he, in no certain terms, told me, that I could go to London, but I wasn't taking my daughter. And I put my foot down and I said, yes, I am. She's my daughter. I'm taking her with me. No, you're not. He's where are you going to live? What are you going to work at? You can't take her to a place when you've got nothing in place. He said, I will let you have our daughter when you have somewhere to live and you get a job. But in the meantime, she stays here with me. And I reluctantly agreed. But on the morning I was leaving, I decided, no, I am going to take her with me. I am. So I went into her room to pick her up and she was gone. She was gone out of her cot. My husband's mother and father lived downstairs and we lived upstairs. It was a huge house, as you can see, so there was no problem like to divide it. And I ran downstairs and there was a dividing door. And I knocked on the tried to open the door. The door was locked and I banged on the door. And I could hear my daughter on the other side crying. And I begged them to open the door, let me see her. And my ex-husband, or my husband then, came to the the door and he said, no, you're not seeing her. So you go upstairs, get yourself ready. You're not seeing her today. So I went back upstairs, snivelling and crying. And I thought, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? And I thought, I have to get away. 
So I packed up my few bits, last bits, and I was snivelling and snivelling and sobbing and snivelling. And I came back downstairs like a wee child. And I begged them, begged them to let me see her. And um, they came through the door. And my husband's mother was holding my daughter in her arms. And my daughter put her arms out to me. He said, Mama. And I went to, to take her. And um, his mother pulled her away. And my husband said, no, you can hug her while she's in my mother's arms. So I did. And um, you know, that was very, 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 very traumatic. I was walking out the door. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, mommy's going to do you proud. Mommy's going to get a job and somewhere to live and I'm going to come back for you. My husband had insisted on taking me to the airport. Um, so um, we were driving out of the, out of the village. He said, um, I, I want to take you to see the solicitor because I want to make sure you don't take any of my farm. There's 250 acres. And being a little bit pig-headed, I, I said, well, I don't want any of your stupid farm anyway. So we went into the solicitors and put these papers in front of me and I signed them and never really looked over them because I was on my way to Dublin to catch a plane to London. So I signed them. Um, got to London, got to Dublin Airport, got on the plane, looked at the papers and at the back, in the very, very, very bottom, there was a line that basically said I'd signed away custody of my daughter to my husband. When I got to London, I did find somewhere to live and I did get a job. And I remember running to the Irish Centre in Shepherd's Bush, begging them for help to help me get my daughter. I enlisted the help of a solicitor. And cut a long story short, Chair, I fought a very, very hard, bitter battle for six years to try and get my daughter back. But by the time all the paperwork and courts and solicitors' letters and it was decided that my daughter had started school here in Ireland and it would be unfair to remove her and take her to London. But I was granted unlimited access, which on paper looked great and that should that should have made everything right. But my husband being the kind of man he was, he manipulated everything and I would make arrangements to see my daughter and he would say, no, you're not seeing her. Or he'd ring me and say, no, you're not coming over. She doesn't want to see you. So the visits and stuff that I had with my daughter were to the best of my ability under really extreme circumstances. I would have gone to hell and high water for her. But he made it as awkward as he could. But I, I did have a relationship with my daughter, however sporadic it was, you know, but it wasn't as good as I would have wanted it to be. Cassie, you, you found love in London. I did, Can you yes. tell us a little bit about uh -huh. that? I'd met, um, gosh, it sounds terrible, my second husband, um, shortly after 
and he was a musician and uh, I thought he was absolutely wonderful he, he caught my eye and I caught his eye and um, we, we fell in love which I thought was more of an infatuation again looking back my hindsight is a great thing if you could bottle it and sell it <laughs> he was a musician I'd met him at a gig and uh, he used to play stuff like um, Bon Jovi and all the stuff that was current in the, in the 80s and the 70s he's played a lot of 70s and 60s stuff and on this night that I met him he played the song uh, Eric Clapton's song Wonderful Tonight and I remember him looking at me and I remember thinking to myself in my naivety oh he's singing that song for me <laughs> and um, we we chatted and he said to me I wasn't going to go to London on my own. I wouldn't last five minutes that he'd come to London with me. So we went to London and we secured a flat in Shepherd's Bush, just at the back of the police station on the Uxbridge Road. And uh, we we lived there for about 18 months, but very, very shortly into that relationship. I mean, I'm talking a matter of weeks into that relationship. Um, the violence started. Cassie, do you remember the first time that you... No, I know you had a terrible life up to this, but the first time, and I'm not trying to lessen that or take away from it, but the first time that you ever actually got a beaten by your your husband, that must have been terrible. Yes, it was a a huge shock. Um, If I can (coughs) paint a picture for you... um, as to how much of a shock it was. We were living in a, in a little tiny studio flat, um, as I say, off the Uxbridge Road. I was I was working in a bakery just on the corner, so we were walking distance from, from our little studio flat. And uh, my husband, it was my boyfriend at that time, would insist on taking me to work every day and collecting me. And sometimes he'd, he'd arrive to collect me a little bit early and hover around the shops and I remember the other girls in the shop saying God that's very creepy you know like and I thought in my naivety again thinking oh no it's because he loves me so much he can't stay away from me so this particular day the same scenario we were only we'd only been in London I'd say about a month and um, I was working and he'd arrived early to collect me and he was hovering outside the shop and some builders had come in for sandwiches and I say we were young, 20, 21-year-old girls and they were having a bit of banter and a bit of laugh with us and I could sense my boyfriend's eyes looking at me and I thought, no, nah, no, don't be silly, Cassie, it's, it's all right, you know, he's, he's your boyfriend, he's not, he's not your stepfather. And I came out of work and I could sense his body language was different, he was quite rigid and quite uptight and I, he questioned me who were those guys and oh they're just builders what were you talking about oh just talking about this that and the other I can't remember it was only you seem to be very very friendly I said oh well, that's what we do and I was babbling on and the whole time on the way home I kept thinking no don't be frightened don't be frightened Cassie he's, he's your boyfriend not your stepfather you have to stop thinking that and we got in into our apartment and I was babbling away about my day at work and I was nervous so I was waffling 
And uh, he stopped me in mid-sentence. And he said, I'm going to ask you again, what were you talking to those men about? And I, I can't remember and started waffling again. And in his studio flat, the actual bed was in the front room. It was sort of like just one room. And he gave me, he just gave me an unmerciful slap across the face that sent me flying onto the bed. And he stormed out. And I remember sitting on the bed in absolute shock, terrified, and very, 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 very frightened. And I'm thinking to myself, oh God, I can't believe that's happened. What am I going to do? I'm in London on my own. I have nobody. I can't go back to Ireland. What do I do? Or maybe it's my fault because, yeah, I shouldn't have been talking to those builders. And I just don't, I don't know, Jer. I was just really, really, really frightened. How long did the beatings go on? I was for nearly 25 years, for 22 and a half years. I can, I can read you a poem I wrote. It'll give you a sense of what the beatings did to me. We got married um, in Hammersmith Registry Office in 1988. And then in 2000, after I'd had my last child, we got a wedding blessing. And it was supposed to be a new start and I'd had promises that there would never, ever, ever be any more beatings. There would never be anything. We were going to live happily. And he promised he'd give me the wedding day that I never had. So this is what happened. This will give your listeners and you an idea of exactly what I was feeling after being worn down by the abuse. There's a poem I wrote called My Wedding Day and I actually wrote it the night of this particular day. A monster tried to kill me today on this my wedding day. He grabbed my hair, threw me down on the floor. He started to kick me, then kick me some more. Please don't hurt me, I started to cry. With his boot on my face, I thought I would die. The pain I was feeling was more than before, as he put his boot in to kick me some more. People came running to pull him away, on this, my wedding day. Gone were the vows and the pretty dress, my body, my face, my heart in a mess. I came home quietly, all broken and worn. Worrying stupidly, was my dress torn? I went upstairs and I slipped out of my dress. I looked in the mirror, my face was a mess. I crept downstairs to fetch a drink. He'll be sleeping now, is what I did think. I went to the kitchen and out of the blue. He grabbed me again. I'm not finished with you. He punched and he kicked me and he threw me around. I lay injured, sobbing, curled on the ground. The memories of my wedding day are strong in my mind. That saying is true, love is blind. So here I am with a band on my finger. As I sat there alone, those words did linger. For better, for worse, till death us do part. This was supposed to be a new start. But once again, I'm alone in tears. Still being battered, it's been going on years.
So, Cassie, you moved back to Ireland with your husband and kids. To where? To Carlo. Yeah, and this is this is the house here. And you know, Jerry, as I stand looking at it, ah, oh, what do I feel? I feel shivers because it doesn't mean anything to me. It's it's like I'm looking at this house for the very very first time. I feel like a stranger standing here looking at it and then I feel a sense of sadness because I know how abusive and how toxic that relationship was and I know how hard I fought to keep everything together and how I lost everything and now I'm here and I'm the person that I am I look in at the house and I think, what was it all for? It doesn't mean anything to me now. Now, Cassie, you told me before that money wasn't a problem in your second marriage, that your, your second husband was, was quite well off. Did you see any of that? No. Um, when I decided to leave, I had reached the bottom of a dark pit I've been asked a couple of times, did I suffer with depression? And I, I've thought long and hard about this. And my honest, honest answer is, I don't think I ever remember not being depressed or not knowing what it was like to be depressed. And it's only since I'm away from my abuse do I now know just how depressed I actually really was. But at that time, just before I left, I had reached the pit of depression I, the verbal abuse, the manipulation, the fear I was living in crippled me and I was afraid to get out of bed. I lost the will to get out of bed and I would spend maybe two, three days every now and again in bed not wanting to get up, not wanting to speak to anybody, lost in, in, a, in a web of pure depression mi- misery. And one day I heard an advertisement on the radio for the domestic violence unit. And I thought, I have to do something. I have to, have to do something. My life is passing me by. I'm nearly 45. And I've done nothing but, with my life, only cry. So I picked up the phone and I made a call. And I have to say that was the best call I made because it then gave me the tools I needed to take steps to get myself away from that abuse. And when I did come away from the abuse... My husband went into overdrive in his control and I lost everything. I lost the house. For a time I lost my children. I lost my business. And I basically left that marriage after almost 25 years with seven small boxes of personal belongings. And your children, did you see your children? Did you have access to your children? And what had happened was... um, I I learned afterwards as well through women's aid, actually, because I I blamed myself. My children were very angry with me. They they were somewhat abusive through their anger at me. And, of course, I wasn't prepared for that. But I learned afterwards through women's aid that um, when a man who is as controlling as my husband was feels he's losing a grip of his his family or is losing control of of this woman... He will use the children as a weapon against this woman. And that was the case in my situation. 
my children didn't want anything to do with me for a period of time, which was really, really hurt me. Cassie, when you left your second husband, where did you go? I actually took a house. This is it here. Um, you can see it's only three miles away from where the children are. And I was lucky that I was able to secure that house uh, through the help, with the help of the domestic violence unit and um, the, the local social welfare office. And I stayed there for, oh gosh, I was there for nearly a year. But in that year, I was still being tormented by my husband. He was stalking me. He was still terrorising me. And there was little I could do because he never got caught in the act. So I was living in pure fear. And it was at that, it was through that year, towards the end of that year, that that's when I met Connor. And that's when my life changed for good. And you're bringing us neatly back to, to Connor. Um, you met him through an online dating site. Did you not at that stage think that you had and had had enough of men? No. You know, I, I mean that they weren't worth the trouble, the pain, the grief, the horrible life you had was um, caused by men. That's an interesting question. Uh, no, I, and honestly, no, because somewhere in my head and somewhere in my heart, I know that not all men were like the men that I chose. I very quickly through the domestic violence unit and books that I'd read learned very quickly that what you give out to the universe is what you get back. I didn't know any different than the life of abuse. So therefore, in my choice of partners, I chose men that were abusive. But I don't and never did at that point even to this day, don't believe that all men are are bastards, really. I don't believe that at all. I believe there are lots of beautiful human beings out there and I don't blame them for the sins of my fathers. Cassie, the day Connor was diagnosed with cancer, can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, that was just horrific. As I said, Connor... After all the abuse I'd been through, Connor was my angel. He was my shining light. He was my absolute everything. And I absolutely adored him as he did me. And the day he was diagnosed with cancer, it's, it's, I, I just can't describe what went through us. We, we sort of went into this blind denial positivity in that, it's okay, we're going to beat this, we're, we're going to beat this. And he, even the doctors, like, the, he was put on target therapy. He, he couldn't have um, chemotherapy or uh, an operation or anything to remove the cancer. He had to go on target therapy. And we thought the drugs were working. Um, he was in terrible pain with his arm because he'd had to have major surgery on that. When we um, went into St. Vincent's, very, very quickly, Connor was diagnosed with his cancer. Um, uh, neither of us were prepared for anything because Connor was a very, very fit man. He was a beautifully handsome figure of a man. He never smoked. He never drank. He ate well. 
he, he was very fit. So for him to have the degree of cancer or have cancer at all just just didn't fit with the kind of man that he was. And even with his diagnosis, we we totally believed because he was so fit and strong that he could overcome it. Cassie, your first choice of music, and as you might be aware, normally in this program we try and mix a little bit of music in with, to, 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 in with the show. Um, um, actually, when, when Connor died, uh, he was a huge Queen fan. And um, the song we played was a very, 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 very beautiful song. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners will, will relate to this song too. There's not many of us out there that haven't been touched by cancer and lost someone through it. And somebody young. And it's uh, Roger Taylor's One by One, Only the Good Die Young. It's a very, very beautiful song. Everywhere the broken hearted, 
And when the doctors told us that his cancer was incurable, but they could they could control it, we we totally stayed positive about the whole thing. The most beautiful thing about those seven months was that Connor had spent a lot of time in bed because he was suffering with terrible, terrible exhaustion. And he was very, very frightened about dying. He was extremely scared and he he was afraid to leave me. He didn't want to leave me. And we talked for hours and hours and hours. And I'm not ashamed to say that I shared more in the three years I was with Connor than I ever shared in the nearly 25 years I was married and on a completely different level, on a completely loving, beautiful, beautiful level. And I'm I'm not spending my days crying. I do get my moments where I cry and I grieve. I put on his jumper. I put on his aftershave. I listen to his music and I have my moments of tears. But I'm a very, very blessed person to have shared such a beautiful love with such a beautiful human being. And many people look all their lives for what I had and never find it. And if I never find it again, I will treasure what I did have. I got to plan his funeral with him right down to the last detail. And if you can say a funeral was beautiful, well then Connor's funeral was beautiful. And I have the most beautiful memories. Yes, I have a pain in my heart that won't go away just right now. Yes, I miss him unbelievably. I felt him on my shoulder on the journey here today. And I do feel he's with me. Um, but I will stay strong and I will keep pushing forward because of the love I have for him and the love he had for me. Cassie, are you angry with God for giving you the life that you endured, giving you a brief period of happiness and then just taking it away? Um, I'm not angry at the moment. I was. When when Connor first died, I was very angry. And then I had to try and rationalise it some way. And somewhere amongst the tears, somewhere amongst the pain, there's a reason why things have happened. There, There's a reason. I I have life lessons to learn. What those life lessons are, I don't know yet. But I have life lessons to still learn. Um... What am I learning so far? I'm learning that I can drive further than I thought I could. Um, I'm learning that my sense of direction isn't as rubbish as I thought it was. Um, I'm learning that I can stand on my own two feet and I can do things for myself. The most beautiful, beautiful thing that I have learned is that I am loved and I am lovable. And I love. That's what Connor taught me. Connor taught me that I am lovable and I can love. And if I don't learn anything else in life, I think I can go quite far just knowing that much. Cassie, do you miss him? I miss him like you wouldn't believe. Um, I would do anything to hear his voice one more time to see him smile 
to have a cuddle. And then I have to think, but what I did have with him, however brief it was, was absolutely beautiful and perfect. But yes, I do miss him. I go up to the cemetery every day and I see him. Cassie, Cassie Moore isn't your real name because of all sorts of legal reasons. We're not giving your real name. Uh, those who know you know you as you are and appreciate that. Those who don't know you don't know what they're missing. Thank you very much. And my thanks, of course, to Cassie for that very, very open and honest look back at her life. It wasn't an easy thing for her to do. Now, Women's Aid support those affected by domestic violence and they have a helpline at 1-800-341-900.